The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community, formerly the Wellness Community and Gilda's Club. Uh, the Wellness Community recently joined forces with Gilda's Club to become the Cancer Support Community, likely the largest provider of cancer support in the U.S. and around the world. Our services are offered at over 100 locations worldwide and online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. On uh, today's show, which is being brought to you by uh, Millennium, uh, Morphotech and Novartis Oncology. We are joined by two wonderful guests who are here to discuss a type of cancer that used to be one of the most common causes of cancer deaths for American women, uh, cervical cancer. Uh, although it no longer holds that title, it does remain a hot topic for women everywhere. But before we jump into today's show, let's move to a segment we call Cancer in the News, which highlights the latest cancer headlines. I'm Bill Schaefer, and this is today's Cancer in the News. Emotional stress can put newly diagnosed prostate cancer patients at increased risk for cardiovascular events and suicide, a new study has found. Researchers analyzed data on almost 170,000 men diagnosed with prostate cancer between 1961 and 2004. Of those men, over 10,000, about 6%, experienced a cardiovascular event within a year of cancer diagnosis, and 136 of them, almost a tenth of a percent, committed suicide. Before 1987, prostate cancer patients were about 11 times more likely to experience a fatal cardiovascular event during the first week after diagnosis than men without prostate cancer. After 1987, the risk of fatal or non-fatal cardiovascular events in men with prostate cancer was about three times higher in the first week and slightly higher in the first year after diagnosis compared to men without prostate cancer, they noted. Although only 136 of the nearly 170,000 men included in the study committed suicide, the relative risk of suicide associated with prostate cancer was 8.4% during the first week and 2.6% during the first year, according to the report published on December 14th in the journal PLOS magazine. In other news, a newly targeted cancer drug has been shown to shrink tumors in women with metastatic breast cancer after an average of seven other drugs, included herpesin, had failed. The new drug, called T-DM1, combines herpesin with a potent chemotherapy drug. It's a Trojan horse approach where herpesin homes in on the cancer cells and delivers the cancer-killing agent directly to its target. Tumors shrank in one-third of the women with metastatic breast cancer given T-TM1. In another 12%, the tumors stopped growing for at least six months. The women remained cancer-free for an average of seven months, results unheard of in patients this sick, he said. The findings were presented at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. 
As I mentioned at the top of the show, we are joined by two guests today who are here to talk about a type of cancer that affects women. Uh, I'm not talking about breast cancer today. We're talking about cervical cancer. January is National Cervical Cancer Awareness Month, and on today's show we're going to examine why the incidence of cervical cancer has declined, but also discuss why it remains an incredibly serious illness to those uh, it still impacts. First, we're joined by Rosie Driesen. Rosie is a cervical cancer survivor and a member of the Cancer Support Community's local affiliate, Gilda's Club, Quad Cities. Thanks for being here, Rosie. You're welcome. And uh, we also have Cheryl Redlin-Frazier. Cheryl is a registered oncology nurse and clinical learning consultant at Vanderbilt Medical Center. She is a dear friend of the cancer support community with whom we have worked for many years, and we are honored to have her with us here today. Welcome, Cheryl. Thank you. Uh, We've got a lot to cover um, on the show today, so I want to get started. Um, Rosie, I'm going to start with you. Uh, Take us back to right before you were diagnosed with cervical cancer. Did you have symptoms? Was there something that led you to the doctor? Um, How did you find out you had cancer? Well, I didn't have any symptoms except one very prominent one, and uh, that was that uh, the tumor that I had on my cervix cervix actually was visible. Mm. And uh, so then I went to uh, a doctor, and I was referred to a gynecologist, and in the local area, and from there I was referred to Iowa, the uh, gynecology department at University of Iowa Hospitals, and that's where I received my diagnosis. Uh huh. And so, um, so tell us a little bit more about that. You were you weren't having any particular symptoms? Was no. it Down during an exam or? Uh, yes, it was found during an exam. Well, I I could see it, and that's why I went into the doctor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Unusual. And yeah, yeah. And uh, so they did. A, they did uh, a series of tests and screenings. Yeah. And yes, they did. Um, and a pelvic, of course. And then um, when I was referred to Iowa City, they did an ultrasound. And fortunately, I was. <clears throat> they were able to call Dr. David Bender over, who was the, who was the head of the gynecology oncology department at uh, Iowa City. Mm-hmm. And he took a look at me, and then um, we went on from there. I see. I see. Mm, wow. You know, Cheryl, can you can you give us some background? Explain to us why cervical cancer was was one of the most common causes of cancer deaths for American women, and why the death rate has declined so rapidly now over the years. Well, um, it really started back in 1925 when some physicians began to develop instruments for the examination of the cervix. And then um, in 1941, Dr. Papaniculau um, published the first papers on screening of the cervix, so taking some cells from the cervix and looking at it under a microscope, which is um, what we now call the PAP test. Um, originally, it was a smear, so they just would um, sort of scrape the, sli- the cells on the slide and look at that under the microscope. And now we've moved into the liquid-based technology era um, where those same cells, instead of being slapped on a slide, are sort of stirred up in a, a liquid, and then that liquid is able to be examined um, through a certain process under the microscope. So that has caused a remarkable decline in the incidences of cervical cancer. So if you can screen for abnormality um, and do a treatment of some kind, then it doesn't develop into cervical cancer. So we've gone from hundreds of thousands of women back in the 30s and 40s to today where in 2009 the American Cancer Society estimates that there would be 
11,270 new cases of cervical cancer in the United States. And then, you know, it remains to a problem worldwide. It still ranks as the fifth killer of women worldwide, and um, and that is mostly um, in underdeveloped countries where there is no screening tool. And the PAP test is sort of, you know, the hallmark of screening tools. It is what all other screening tests want to be. So we're very fortunate to um, have that as a tool for as a screen. Yeah, yeah. And so are you saying, Cheryl, that we're... We're catching cancer earlier and able to treat it, or are you saying exactly. that we're finding irregular cells before they even turn into cancer and we're able to do something? Right. So um, there is a long period of latency or a quiet period where um, the uh, the infection, if you will, the cancer um, develops over time. So there are women, you know, that are treated for dysplasias that never have an opportunity to develop into cancers, and that's really... Um, why this is such a terrific screening tool. If we had something like this for lung cancer, we would be diagnosing people with just some cellular changes and doing something about that rather than um, getting to the point where it developed into a cancer. And is that what a dysplasia is, Cheryl? Yes, early changes in the cell. But not cancer? Correct. And so so, uh, if if a dysplasia... Um, is found during the pap screening, then what is done? Well, there's a couple things that can be done. Um, They're getting very conservative in treatment now because the majority of cancers of the cervix, so um, even close to 100%, are caused by the HPV virus. Mm -hmm. And, um, And it's like a cold virus, if you will. So people get a cold and they go through the sniffles and the cough and the maybe fever chill sort of thing, but that gets better. And there's um, many people who get an HPV infection who will go through the same thing. They have a change in the cells. Um, they get their immune system kicks in and they get over it and never have a problem again. So we now are looking at women with cervical abnormalities such as dysplasia and watching them over a period of time very carefully. And then if it does change or it gets worse, then we can do things like a laser, a cryotherapy, um, electrocautery, so a, 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 just a a removal of those abnormal cells and the cervix will then grow back and look perfectly normal. And those are pretty minimal procedures. Very, yes, very safe, um, Mm -hmm. done in the outpatient area. Um, Many women can go back to work afterwards, um, cramping, and um, that it it is a very tolerable way to treat this abnormality. Treat it. Mm -hmm. Now, Rosie, you had a very rare form of cervical cancer, a rare case of cervical cancer, um, isn't that right? Can you can you tell us a little bit about that and about yes, what your uh, treatment was? Sure. It was uh, actually a rhabdomyosarcoma, mm. and it usually only shows up in children. Mm. And, um, of course, the University of Iowa Hospital did the lab tests, and then they sent, um, because of the rarity of it, they sent it to the, I believe it was the National Cancer Review Board, mm. who confirmed the diagnosis. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then, um, and then, what uh, what course of treatment did they recommend for you? Well, um, first, I I had surgery. I had a radical hysterectomy, and they biopsied all of my lymph nodes, and also did what's um, a uterine wash, where they examined the cells in the liquid in in my uter- uterus, and they were all everything was clean. 
Mm-hmm. I was lucky there. This type of tumor is rapidly growing and highly malignant, and I had had regular um, pap smears, and, and nothing really had showed up. So then after I had the radical hysterectomy, because it was a, t- a type of tumor that shows up in children, mm-hmm. um, we consulted with a pedi- pediatric oncology clinic at Iowa City to see if they concurred with uh, the chemo treatment Mm -hmm. that was recommended, and they did. I felt a little ridiculous going into the children's pediatric clinic (laughs) for my consult, but that was okay. And then um, I had chemo for a year, Mm -hmm. and that ended a year ago this January. Mm -hmm. And since then, I've had regular checkups. And uh, how was the chemo? Well, the chemo was rather <laughs> not so good. Mm. Um, at first, I had a chemical that uh, can damage your kidneys, and so I was hospitalized for the first for one weekend um, for three months. I think it was every three weeks I went for that treatment, and then after that, when I was done with the Vincristin, then I just um, was outpatient chemo. Mm-hmm. And I was fortunate in that it was, I only had it for, the infusion took about 15 minutes. I had a port put in, which infused the chemicals directly into my heart. And um, it was not a bad experience at all. It did make me tired mm-hmm. afterwards. Uh, about two days after, usually Thursday and Friday, I, would, I was pretty tired. Um, but, and I also took medication for nausea, of course. Mm-hmm. However, I decided that I was not going to let cancer run my life. Yeah. And I remember one time I always had my chemo on Tuesdays. Mm-hmm. And on a weekend, um, the paddling, the kayak paddlers that I go with were planning a trip, weekend trip on the Wisconsin River. <laughs> and I decided I was going because I wanted to go. And actually, we paddled 15 miles the first day. Oof. And I did just fine. I I think honestly think that I you know it was off my mind. I wasn't thinking about it. <laughs> it was being out in the fresh air and on the river with friends, and so I was glad that I did it. Like superwoman out there on the kayak. <laughs> yeah, I just went about my business and yeah, did what I wanted to do as much as I could, and I really think that made a difference. Made a difference in terms of just how you were coping with the treatment and yes. Coping overall with the diagnosis of cancer. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is frankly speaking about cancer. January is National Cervical Cancer Awareness Month. Uh, today we are talking about cervical cancer. It used to be a uh, uh, one of the most common causes of cancer deaths um, among women. However, we have, uh, over the past decades, improved uh, tremendously our screening uh, and detection of uh, cervical cancer early treatment. Uh, of cervical cancer, we've seen a dramatic uh, decrease uh, in death rates from cancer, but certainly still a very serious illness uh, for those who have been diagnosed with it. We're going to take a quick break here, and we will be right back. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. 
The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Many of us try to maintain a healthy lifestyle, but there is just so much going on in our lives. Food allergies, picky eaters, tight schedules, and the like. We also have so much to think about. Weight management, disease prevention, eating psychology, and creating a healthy meal in minutes. Listen for Nutrition Matters and let Roxanne Moore step in to save you from the overwhelming sea of nutrition information. Roxanne will share success tips to keep you winning with over 15 years as a registered dietitian. Listen Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tibaldo, and today we're talking about cervical cancer. January is National Cervical Cancer Awareness Month, and we're joined by uh, two experts who are here to give us a fax. We have Cheryl Redland-Frazier, a registered oncology nurse and clinical learning consultant at Vanderbilt Medical Center. And we have Rosie Dreesen, a cervical cancer survivor and a member of the Cancer Support Community's local affiliate, Gildas Club, in Quad Cities, Iowa. Uh, Cheryl, we just heard a little bit about Rosie's cancer treatment. Um, obviously, Rosie had a pretty rare form of cancer, had treatment for uh, a year, pretty uh, intense, uh, intense undertaking. Um, Cheryl, tell us, is there research being done to find new ways to treat cervical cancer? Are there standard kind of acceptable treatments? Uh, what, what's happening on the, the research and treatment front with cervical cancer? Well, you know, we we did establish that Rosie's cancer was a very rare. Rhabdomyosarcoma would probably fall in that less than 1% of all cervical cancer types. So the most common being squamous cell, um, about 85%. And then the adenocarcinomas um, comprise a little bit less than 15%. So, you know, very rare. But not her treatment regimen was not that different from other cervical cancer treatments. Um, but there, there are some interesting things coming. Um, right now we are in an era of um, still giving lots of chemotherapy, which is what Rosie got and which really is the standard of care. Um, in cervical cancer, combining um, chemotherapy like cisplatin and um, radiation is a very common way of treating if, if a surgery is not a possibility. And sometimes it's hard for patients to understand why the cancer can't be taken out. Yeah. And in, in Rosie's case, it was possible to operate on her, but then she got additional chemotherapy to treat anything that might be left behind. 
so um, having a great dialogue with the physician um, about, you know, where your treatment regimen might fit. But back to what's sort of on the horizon yeah, for us, yeah. using um, some of the new chemotherapies that are out um, has been um, very effective. In 2006, the FDA approved the use of two agents um, for recurrent cancer, Hycampton and Cisplatin, but lots of other ones are being looked at. And then biologics, which have proven to be very successful in treating things like renal cell carcinomas and breast cancer are starting to make an appearance um, in clinical trials um, in cervical cancer. So um, one would be bevacizumab, which is an anti-VEGF monoclonal antibody. Whoa, 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 that's a lot, yeah. Carol. It's, a, it's, a, it's an alphabetic uh, mouthful. Yeah, yeah. Alphabet soup. Yeah. Um, but it has been used in colon, lung, it's and breast. It's a new treatment, you say? Yes. Okay. And um, another biologic um, is called... What does that or, mean when you say it's a biologic? Does, well, it's, it's not, does that mean it's not a chemotherapy? Right. It's, it's a different... Um, animal from chemotherapy, uh-huh. if you will. So it works um, at a cellular level, which chemotherapy does too, but it um, it is a, a very basic cellular level. And um, erlotinib is another drug. People might know that as Tarceva, mm-hmm. and um, been very successful in treating non-small cell lung cancer, pancreatic cancer, and um, other cancers as well. It's now being looked at in cervical cancer as a treatment. All of this under the guise of clinical trials, which um, anybody who's ever um, heard me speak before talks a lot about being a participant in a clinical trial so that we can answer some of the questions about treatment. Um, Some other exciting things that are being looked at is hyperthermia, and um, that is a trial where the body is heated and, and then chemotherapies are given. Um, and that's particularly looking at a, a different way to stop tumor cells from dividing so they either stop growing or die altogether. And um, then some other natural compounds. Uh, there is a marine natural compound, and uh, Zolipsis is its name, and it's a very novel chemical. This will fall sort of in that chemotherapy um, realm. But So there's a lot of exciting things going on um, as far as research. And you would have to participate in a clinical trial to get any of these agents, but um, showing great promise in other diseases, and so I'm very excited about the potential in cervical cancer and vaccines. So we'll talk a little bit um, about the vaccines in a minute, I think, but um, we're also looking at giving vaccines to people with cervical cancer, so um, in an attempt to produce an immune reaction. To well, let's the jump. Let's cancer. jump to that, Cheryl, to the vaccines. What? So you know, I, I know that. Uh, that in the past year or two, we kind of heard a lot about the cervical, new cervical cancer uh, vaccines and a lot of discussion, some controversy. In your opinion, should girls and women be getting this the cervical cancer vaccine? And if yes, why? Well, without a doubt. I mean, it, it is, to me, it is as exciting as having such a perfect screening tool as the PAP test. Um, I had the really good fortune of hearing um, a physician give a presentation on this who's been very involved, um, Tom Cox, who's from the University of California, Santa Barbara. And, um, you know, it is it is such a remarkable agent. This was approved in 2006. It's called a quadrivalent vaccine, quad meaning four. And in the vaccine, there are um, there is treatment for four different 
HPV types. So two types, 16 and 18, which cause 70% of all cervical cancers, and that's all cervical cancers. Now, um, Rosie's would probably not ever fall within this realm, but certainly the majority of women who we said before, close to 100% who have cervical cancer have some kind of HPV um, infection. And then the other two types that are in this quadrivalent or four vaccine is 6 and 11, and those cause 90% of all genital warts. So, um, you know, it, the, the hope was to cover at least these four so that we could get um, broad coverage and hopefully um, have a powerful effect. And so um, the CDC estimates that about 20 million people um, are infected with HPV at any given time. And so targeting um, young girls um, would be sort of the way to um, cover a group of of women who are at risk for getting uh, cervical cancer at some point in their life. So their recommendation is to give it to uh, girls ages 11 to 12. It could be started as early as 9 and given up to the age of 26. And there are ongoing studies looking at um, the benefit of giving it to women who are over the ages of 26. And then there also are studies looking at um, boys and young men and using the vaccine in that group, too, because there's growing evidence that throat cancer, um, which is on the rise, is caused by HPV infection as well. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, Rosie, a lot of this information about the vaccine was coming out while you were, you know, being diagnosed and in right. treatment for cancer. What because folks did folks because you had cervical cancer was this a topic of conversation that that came up uh, with folks around you? No, not really. I um, kind of, I'm kind of a private person, and so the people at Gelda's Club, my friends at Gelda's, and my support group know what type of cancer I have, and my family does, but. Yeah. I don't really talk about it a lot to other yeah. people. Yeah. Um, and one thing I was going to say, um, Dr. Bender did try to get me into a clinical study, mm-hmm. but because of my age, mm-hmm. um, I w- they wouldn't accept me. Mm-hmm. I was uh, 63 when I was diagnosed mm-hmm. and 66 now, so three years past um, my diagnosis. And just because of your age, you didn't qualify for the trial? Right. Why would that be, Cheryl? What? <laughs> well, there, you know, there's a lot of controversy about that. There's yeah. um, some very high-level um, thinkers who really disagree with um, holding the age limit in clinical trials because, yeah. um, obviously, longevity is an issue for baby boomers. Sure. And um, we are living much longer, and we are doing, for example, bone marrow transplants, stem cell transplants in older um, age groups now. So um, I think the NCI, the National Cancer Institute, is very sensitive to not excluding older people from clinical trials. So I don't, because I don't know the nature of the trial, um, I couldn't really speak to why that was sure. a specific limiting sure. factor. Interesting, interesting. Well, Cheryl, it seems that that many older women don't realize that they still have a risk of developing cervical cancer, um, but yet, you know, almost 20% of women with cervical cancer are diagnosed over the age of 65. Why do you think 
older women don't think that they're at risk for cervical cancer? Well, I, I think there's, there's probably a lot that's going on. You know, 25% of cases occur in women 65 years and older, and 41% of the deaths. So, you know, they're much more likely, mm-hmm. when diagnosed, to die of the disease. And so I think um, one of the things we have to consider is, is it because the older woman has competing health issues? Mm-hmm. So risk for heart disease, diabetes, arthritis. And so are they paying more attention to those um, very obvious health concerns and not paying attention to, um, you know, the gynecologic concerns? Um, I think that's probably one. And I think, um, you know, this women are certainly private about their gynecologic care. And I think, you know, it, it takes um, a certain amount of, um, inner strength to go to the gynecologist yeah. and, and build that relationship and maintain that relationship. And so I think um, probably competing priorities is one. It's out of sight, out of mind. You know, we breasts are out there in front of us and we're told to examine them, but the cervix is internal and um, just not something that's think that you're constantly thinking about when you're an older woman. And are the guidelines, Cheryl, that a woman should, what are the guidelines? When should a, when should a girl or a woman start getting a pap smear and for how long through their life should they do that? Well, you know, that's just been changed. Um, following the um, breast cancer recommendation, screening recommendations, yep. so mammogram, um, so the ACOG sort of, the American College of OBGYNs, um, slipped their recommendations in there too shortly after that, but they've actually been working on it um, since June of '09. Mm-hmm. Um, used to, we would screen people, uh, women, as association with their um, age of intercourse. Mm-hmm. Um, now they're talking about the screening starting at the age of 21 because mm-hmm. it, it is rare for a very young woman, so under the age of 21, to develop a cervical cancer mm-hmm. just because of the biology of the HPV virus. Yeah. Um, and so that's changed things um, as far as screening, and it's really to sort of prevent some of this over-treatment that has happened with the dysplasias. Mm-hmm. Then we move to um, women, and so from the age of 21 to the age of 30, um, a regular screening mm-hmm. every year. Um, from 30 and older, the recommendation um, would be once every two years um, with a pap test instead of annually. And um, then women who are 30 and older who um, have negative pap tests mm-hmm. could even go to screening every three years. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a group of women who um, really fall out of that and should... have got a con- quick uh, quick minute till the break there. Sure. sure. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. That should continue to be screened every year. And those are women who are HIV positive, mm-hmm. maybe have rheumatoid arthritis or some kind of immune problem, and DES, um, which there are still some women who were exposed to that. And then women over 65 who have had negative pap tests um, could not be screened at all, but we really want them to keep going to their gynecologist. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So for, Ro- for uh, Rosie's example, going to the gynecologist to get an examination to find what it was, or find her rhabdomyosarcoma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So those are the new those are the new guidelines. They are, and the American Cancer Society and the Women's Cancer Network. I'll, I'll have those recommendations. Yeah, uh, uh, this is frankly speaking about cancer. Um, January's National Cervical Cancer Awareness Month. Uh, we're talking about cervical cancer today. We're talking about uh, 
new guidelines for cervical cancer screening. We're talking about cervical cancer vaccine uh, and uh, the new range of treatment options that are being explored uh, and developed for cervical cancer. Uh, I'm Kim Tebaldo, your host. We're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Journey into the realm of spirit, the source of all things. Master fear in these tumultuous times and learn ancient ways to abundant love and healing. Why Shamanism Now, a practical path to authenticity, will awaken the unique genius within you. Host Christina Pratt challenges you to initiate your innate powers within to gain health, well-being, and joy through the practices of Last Mask Center for Shamanic Healing. Tune in each week to Why Shamanism Now, Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern, on 7th Wave Network. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. January is National Cervical Cancer Awareness Month, and I'm here with Rosie Driesen, a cervical cancer survivor and a member of the Cancer Support Community's local affiliate, Gildas Club Quad Cities, and Cheryl Redland Frazier, a registered oncology nurse and clinical learning consultant at Vanderbilt Medical Center. We've uh, talked a lot about the importance of uh, pap screening as a, as a means of screening for cervical cancer. We've talked about treatment options. Uh, we've talked about vaccines. Um, and uh, we're going to switch gears in just a minute to... Uh, talk about emotional support. But Cheryl, I think you had one or two more points you wanted to add um, about cervical cancer screening, if you will. Right. So I I really want to emphasize that um, most women who die from cervical cancer have never been screened or have not been screened in at least the last five years. So we know that um, using the pap test to screen for cervical cancer, finding early cancers before they can turn into invasive cancers really is the key. Now, Rosie's type of cancer, their rhabdomyosarcoma, grows very quickly and probably would not have been caught on a screening pap test. So I think it's important to know that when we talk about very rare cancers, that sometimes no screening tool is useful. So, so Rosie, in your case, you were getting regular pap screening, um, and that did not detect your cancer? No. Mm. 
Yeah, that's it. Maybe maybe the most frustrating when you're being so diligent like that. <laughs> right. Well, I thought I was. And um, one thing also I wanted to add yeah. was that um, my my oncologist, Dr. Bender, actually wrote an article for the Medical Journal on um, on my cancer and the treatment for it, and <clears throat> they are pleased with the treatment <laughs> because I'm still here. Wonderful, wonderful. That's great, great news, and it's great to have a good team. Surrounding you, Rosie, to help to help with the, those treatment decisions. So that's that's great. Um, I, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about social support, emotional support, finding a network when you're faced with uh, any cancer diagnosis, uh, particularly Rosie, with your diagnosis of cervical cancer. Now, I mentioned earlier in the show that uh, our two organizations, the Wellness Community and Gilda's Club, have joined forces to become the cancer support community, um, the largest cancer support network in the country. And uh, we still have now these wonderful wellness communities and Gilded Clubs all across the country. And, Rosie, I know you found uh, Gilded Club there in Quad Cities. Um, how did you find out about Gilded Club, and what kind of programs do you participate in there? Well, I was um, told about, I had actually drive, uh, Gilded Club is down on River Drive, um, in full view of the Mississippi River, and so I had I knew what it was, and I had driven past it many times, never, of course, thinking that I at one time would be seeking support there. Yeah. But they told uh, they also mentioned Gilda's Club at Iowa City, and it actually took me for a, a while to call. I thought I was doing okay, and um, I had lots of friends helping, and my family was very supportive, and but there was just some something missing or something that I felt like I still needed. Yeah. And so finally I made the call, and of course <clears throat> once I made the call, the staff there is wonderful and, and so supportive, and I just, they just welcomed me with open arms, and um, it, was a, it was a good match for me. What, um, uh, what programs do you participate in there? What do you do there? Well, they have so many different activities, but yeah. my favorite is, Friday morning we do wee bowling, and what's what's good about it is anybody can participate. You don't have to be particularly physical, mm-hmm. physically active to do it, which I actually am. And speaking of that, that was one other thing I wanted to say. I've yeah. always lived a healthy lo- lifestyle, and I have yeah. been very active, and I really do believe that that helped me um, with my journey with mm. the cancer treatment and so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But um, and they, there's also a bagel club on Friday mornings. They just have bagels available, and <clears throat> we go in and visit. And there's a lot of laughing there. And then um, actually through Iowa City was the first when I was hospitalized for the uh, when I first started my chemo. Mm-hmm. Um, I the, the social worker there informed me about a Look Good Feel Better program. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what it is is um, they have you get a big bag of makeup. And um, a makeup expert comes in and shows you how to apply the makeup. Uh, the makeup is donated by all different kinds of makeup companies. Yeah. And um, they also showed us wigs and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, scarves and hats and different things that you could do um, for when you lost your hair. Did you lose your hair during your treatment? Yes, I did. How was that? Was that hard? <laughs> I knew it was going to happen, yeah. and I decided um, after it started falling, it took a while for it to start falling out, yeah. and 
I just decided, okay, I'm done with this. I, I went to our local beauty college, Capri, and um, I said, okay, I want my head shaved. <laughs> mm. And so we kind of made it a, a party, and yeah. two or three of the gals stood around and watched, and we joked about it, and it didn't really bother me so much. I felt better having my head shaved on. It was much better than seeing it clumps of it in the bathtub. Yeah. That yeah. was rather dismaying. You did, um, a, you did it through your own choice, your own uh, I chose to do right? it that way, and I decided yeah. it was going to be fun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, um, and it was fun, actually. Mm. Um, but to go back to Gilda's, the other thing is I took the cancer transitions class there, yeah. and um, just recently, I think they offered it last fall, one of the few Gilda's clubs in the Quad Cities to offer that program. It is yeah. a fairly new program, and I think it's through the um, Lance Armstrong Foundation. It is. It is a program that we do in partnership with the Lance Armstrong Foundation to help folks make the transition from being a patient to being a survivor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what, what was great about it was it covered all aspects. <clears throat> nutrition. Yeah. We actually had a nutrition from our local grocery store come in and and um, she, they created healthy recipes for us, mm. and um, we did exercises. We had a physical therapist there, which Gilda's also has. Um, club has a physical therapist that you can consult with, mm-hmm. and he'll design a program for you. Yeah. Um, and then just recently, well, one of the things I wanted to say about Gilda's club is we're kind of all in the same boat, and we know how to handle each other, I'll say. Yeah, yeah. Um, we know what to say and what not to say, and um, there is a lot of laughing there. Mm-hmm. Everybody just makes it a point to uh, have a good time, and that's one of the reasons I keep going back is I like to laugh. Um, and then the other class that I just started taking yeah. is the Live Strong, Live Well. Mm-hmm. It's offered by um, RYMCA. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And that, again, is a, a class designed for cancer people that are currently in treatment or people that have completed their treatment. And um, they do a personal physical assessment of your strengths and design a program for you. And so the program is designed for you individually, yes. but you meet as a group mm-hmm. um, to do the workout and to sort of support each other. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, Cheryl, I know we've worked with you for a long time, um, and I just want to know in your work, are you seeing a greater need for social and emotional support for for cancer patients and their caregivers? Are you seeing the experience changing? Yes, I think it's growing. Um, I, I, it, it would be difficult to say that a, lo- a lot of it is um, related to the economy yeah. and loss of jobs and insurance yeah. coverage. Um, you know, certainly people are finding themselves in positions where they have to work to maintain their coverage um, or in a position in a job where if you're sick, you're replaced. Um, so I think, you know, we're, we're becoming even more sensitive to the difficulties that um, our clients are facing um, when they're diagnosed with a cancer that requires ongoing treatment. And I think particularly as it relates to women um, who, you know, still are responsible for maintaining household and care of children and um, that it, it becomes very difficult to, to apply the self-care principle um, when your whole world is sort of in a tumult. And um, I think, you know, we, 
there is a lot of growth in the um, psycho-oncology arena about how to deal with stress in ways that we can help um, our clients deal better with stress as they're going through treatment and afterwards. Um, what are the long-term effects of having this experience and um, the treatment and that sort of thing? Yeah, yeah, because we're certainly, I mean, we know that there's going to be an increase mm-hmm. in the number of people who are diagnosed with cancer, Correct. but the good news is that there's going to be a decrease in, in, uh, in mortality rates, death rates from cancer. But what that means is that you're going to have more people living for a longer period of time with cancer, living with multiple recurrences of cancer. And so certainly for an organization like ours, for the cancer support community, we certainly anticipate an increase in demand. Yeah. Um, for our services just by virtue of those statistics alone. Um, and as you suggested, Cheryl, we're also seeing an increasing number of people who are dealing with the financial burden um, of cancer. In fact, in a recent study that, that, we, that, that we had uh, undertaken, um, for, we were seeing trauma for people mm-hmm. dealing with these issues on the same level as, as uh, people who experienced 9-11 and, and Katrina. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, you've got cancer, you lose your job, you lose your house. And we're right. talking about very serious and high levels of trauma that some folks, um, you know, are, um, are experiencing. Uh, this is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Kim Thibaldo. Today we're talking about cervical cancer. Uh, January is actually National Cervical Cancer uh, Awareness Month, and we're talking today about uh, screening for cervical cancer vaccines. We're talking about treatment and certainly also how to find emotional and social support if you're dealing with cervical cancer or you're dealing with any other cancer or if you're the family member or a loved one of someone dealing with cancer. We're going to take a quick break and we will be right back. Helping you make informed decisions for your life. This is Voice America Health & Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community a global network of education and hope. Have we got a high-energy, all-access sports show for you. It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemont Williams with co-host Jacob Greer. Each week, join Lemont and Jacob as they take callers, discuss the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sit down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific for Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. Helping you make informed decisions for your life. This is Voice America Health & Wellness.
You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. January is National Cervical Cancer Awareness Month, and for those who are just uh, joining the show, we have two great guests on the show here today to give us facts. We have Cheryl Redland-Fraser, a registered oncology nurse and clinical learning consultant at Vanderbilt Medical Center, and Rosie Dreesen, a cervical cancer survivor and a member of the Cancer Support Community's local affiliate, Gilda's Club Quad Cities in Iowa. Uh, Cheryl, if someone has just been diagnosed with cervical cancer, what, what are some of the first things that they should do, first steps that they should take in the face of a cervical cancer diagnosis? Well, I think the most important thing is that she um, seek care from a GYN, a, a gynecologic oncologist. Mm-hmm. And um, that, to me, that is the most important next step. And um, if a woman is having difficulty finding one, there's uh, the Women's Cancer Network, which is sponsored by the Gynecologic Cancer Foundation, has a um, find a gynecologic oncologist um, on its website. Mm. And um, it's www.wcn.org. And I think that's the first most important step. And and then to feel comfortable with that physician. Um, There are several gynecologic oncologists in large cities around the country, actually around the world. And um, and if a woman is not happy with that provider, then um, I would recommend a second opinion. There are... um, Lots of exciting treatments that are available to particularly young women now who may have fertility sparing surgeries. And um, so getting somebody who is well educated and trained to deal with this disease is, is very important from the very beginning. Cheryl, should someone, we, we touched very briefly on clinical trials. Mm-hmm. Um, should a woman be asking about? a clinical trial before a treatment decision is made? Should a woman be asking for a second opinion? Uh, What are some of the other sort of important things to do if you've just been diagnosed? Well, I think always the question should be, what are my treatment options? Mm -hmm. And do or are one of those options participating in a clinical trial? Mm -hmm. Um, Because um, I mentioned the surgery, the fertility sparing surgeries, um, may not be performed in your city, and it may be mm-hmm. that your physician um, would recommend that you go to one of the larger centers to have that done. But a, a woman has to feel empowered enough to ask those questions. And it doesn't hurt to have a partner with you who can write down the answers, who can prompt, um, be prepared with a list of questions. Um, don't take the first answers. Take some time to think about it. Um, sometimes we get a cancer diagnosis and we feel very rushed into making quick decisions as if that were going to make a lot of difference. In in Rosie's case, getting her treatment established um, right away was very important because of how quickly the rhabdomyosarcoma grows, but that is an unusual kind of tumor. Most cancers aren't going to change dramatically in a week or two, so getting time to really process 
the diagnosis and process what you're going to do as a plan and get a plan in place and try to stick to it, mm-hmm. I think is most important. And then finding, um, you know, a, a partner to go through it with you because we only hear about a third of the information that is given to us. Um, and, and when we're under great stress, it could be even less than that. And so having somebody else there who can listen carefully and capture information that you might not be capturing is very important. Yeah. All right, so let's go through a couple of these things again for our listeners. So you've been diagnosed. You want to find out what your treatment options are. You want to make sure you find an oncologist who's also an OBGYN. Is that right? It's right. A, a trained gynecologic oncologist. A trained gynecologic oncologist. Mm-hmm. Okay. You want to find a trained gynecologic oncologist. You want to understand what your treatment options are. If you're uncertain, you may want to go for a second opinion. Uh, you may want to ask the question, is there a clinical trial that might be right for me? Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, I think something you mentioned that we didn't touch on, uh, but, but we should address for just a minute, if you are, uh, if you are of childbearing age and right. you are interested in having children um, or that was part of your life plan, you should be talking to the doctor about whether that's still an option for you. You should be talking about these fertility issues. Is that right, Sharon? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it's very... Sometimes... Um, a woman will get caught up in the, again the cancer diagnosis and do whatever it is to take you know to get rid of it, rid of and aren't thinking about the long term effects of that decision making process. And 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 you know and, and frankly sometimes medical people get caught up in that as well. Right. And, and so we we rely on that partnership between the patient, their family, and the healthcare team to help us tailor the cure for that specific situation and that specific patient. So you really need to be your own advocate. You Absolutely. need to think about You need to stop and you need to say, okay, what are the things that are important to me? What are the things that are important to me in my life, in my family? And you need to make sure that you take responsibility for bringing those things into the conversation with your doctor. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Rosie, um, some, some advice for someone who's just been diagnosed with cancer or with cervical cancer? What advice would you give them in light of your uh, incredible uh, cancer experience? Well, <clears throat> I think everything that Cheryl said is is important, and I think that it's really important to have to have faith and trust in your oncologist, mm-hmm. which I did. I consider myself fortunate to have been referred to Dr. Bender, and um, to take time and think about things. I remember taking my son up with me when. Um, Dr. Bender explained what the protocol would be for the treatment and allowing him to ask questions as well uh, of the doctor. And, um, you know, somebody said to me, (laughs) you know, you have a terminal illness. And I thought, well, life is terminal. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I'm thinking... I don't I just don't look at it that way and yeah. I don't let it I don't let cancer rule my life. Yeah. I I live my life the way I want to and cancer is having had cancer is just part of that of some of the things that I have to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. I well I think Rosie it's a great attitude. I think it's a great inspiration uh to those who are listening cuz obviously you've uh you've been down a rough road uh with your cancer experience and um, as you said, you know, someone really in good health, taking good care of yourself, 
good nutrition and exercise, getting your regular screenings, and uh, you know, and then uh, here you are faced with a very rare and aggressive uh, aggressive form of cancer. So, um, I think that uh, just having you share your story today with our listeners is an incredible uh, inspiration. So, we want to thank you for being on the show today. I want to thank you also, Cheryl, for. Uh, being uh, on the show with us today and, and, and sharing so much enlightening information um, about cervical cancer. And thank you also for your uh, ongoing support of our organization and the wonderful partnership uh, that we've had um, over the years. So it's, it's been a wonderful conversation today. If you um, would like to learn more about cervical cancer, there are a couple resources. I, I want to mention, you mentioned, uh, Cheryl, uh, Women's Cancer Network, and it's yes. www.wcn.org, Women's Cancer Network. Um, there's also, of course, the Gynecologic Cancer Foundation, GCF, uh, who in conjunction with the Society of Gynecologic Oncologists works to support research, education, and public awareness of gynecological cancer prevention, uh, early detection, and treatment. If you'd like to contact GCF, you can call 800-444-4441, or you can visit their website, www.thegcf.org. If you'd like more information about uh, cancer support communities, education and support services, as I said, we've got wellness communities and guildless clubs all over the country providing free support and education uh, to people with all cancers um, at all stages of disease and also family members. We are at 888-793-9355 or www.cancersupportcommunity.org. Follow Frankly Speaking About Cancer on Twitter. Tell us uh, future topics that you'd like to hear about. Thanks for joining us today on the show. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.